the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are and pay respects to their elders past, present and future. Thank you for joining us. My name is Elliot Brennan. I'm a research associate here at the United States Study Centre and I'm truly thrilled to be moderating what is an incredibly topical webinar. Today in the United States, the first COVID-19 vaccines are being rolled out on a day when deaths have ticked over 300,000 in the country. We're also seeing the Electoral College voting, which is just in the last 40 minutes or so, ticked over 270 electoral votes for President-elect Joe Biden. At the same time, a senior advisor to President Trump has announced that there are, quote unquote, alternate electors in, in key battleground states who will essentially, he says, be there in case courts overturn the election. Both the vaccine and this disputed act of democracy have set the internet alight. And that's what we're here to talk about today. We have the privilege to be joined by two of the most qualified experts in a field that has surged to the forefront of the many crises that have defined 2020. Brandy Zadronzi is a Zadrozny is an award-winning investigative features reporter for NBC News, where she covers misinformation, extremism, and the internet. She's written definitive stories on, Q on the QAnon conspiracy, conservative outlet, the Epoch Times, and the profiteers behind the rising anti-vaccination movement and coronavirus misinformation online. Dr. Jennifer S. Hunt is a lecturer in, the national, in national security at the Crawford Public School of Public Policy, ANU, and is a non-resident fellow here at the United States Study Center. Dr. Hunt specializes in the national security of critical systems, including energy and cyber. Dr. Hunt's latest report, The COVID-19 Pandemic Post-Truth, looks at COVID-19 disinformation and conspiracy theories, as well as their longer-term implications. Thank you both for joining us on Vaccine Day. A note of housekeeping, um, you will see at the bottom of your screen a Q&A box. I'd encourage you to submit questions through there and I'll be able to get to them as we roll through. But I might start us off with a note of demarcation given we are dealing with truth here. Jen, could you tell us a little bit about the distinctions between misinformation, disinformation and how they are all caught up in this, this swirling world of conspiracy theory that we've really seen come to the fore during 2020? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction, Elliot. And I'm so privileged to be here uh, with Brandy. I actually referenced Brandy's work and my own report. And there's a lot of overlap between, you know, deep investigative journalism and scholarship. So thank you so much for your contribution and being with us today, Brandy. Um, so definitions. Political scientists always like to start with terminology. Uh, misinformation is inaccurate information that is unintentionally so. So it could be you've misinterpreted a, a statistic. And in which case, um, that correction could be, could be available, right? You could be open to that correction. If you've innocently misinterpreted something or you've misheard something, um, there, there could be a recourse back. Disinformation, by contrast, is intentionally false information. And we tend to attribute those to either hostile foreign actors. Um, we saw with the Senate Intelligence Committee report, the narratives, for instance, that uh, Russian operatives use in the 2016 election around disinformation and active measures around voter fraud. Um, and we still see those narratives percolating so they can be very powerful. So misinformation is unintentionally false. Disinformation is intentionally false. 
And conspiracy theories fit into this very strange area, gray area around those two. So conspiracy theories are sort of a set of uh, assumptions and disconnected facts that seem to point to an enemy, some sort of secret cabal that is orchestrating uh, or behind the scenes of some crisis for either uh, profit or power. Now, the people who promulgate conspiracy theories um, might fervently believe them. So they're not, they're not intentionally misleading. However, they don't rise to the level of credible evidence. And conspiracy theories are also limited in that we tend to see them only around significant events, the really long lasting ones. We are still talking about conspiracy theories around the assassination of JFK, for instance, and the moon landing. So COVID-19 fits, it sort of rises to that occasion of a great event um, around great uncertainty. The conspiracy theories tend to thrive. And as we've seen with people having more, uh, more perhaps more time on their hands, more tools to find answers online, we saw conspiracy theories like QAnon jump into the breach and provide a sense of certainty in a community, uncertainty and community in a time of great upheaval. Yeah, and I, I think that really gets us to how, how messy this whole area is. And Brandy, I really wanted to get a sense. People often describe good journalism as that which shines a light in dark corners. This year has shown just how dark some of the corners of the internet are. How, how as an investigative journalist, do you approach such a slippery context that, that plays out on the internet where you can have memes laid on top of memes where meaning isn't clear? What's, what's your approach to, to distilling fact and, and really important information from such an environment? So I think my um, sort of way of working has been, I mean, I've been in these communities for a long, long time. You know, I've been reporting on bad internet um, for the last, you know, almost a decade now. And so I've been embedded in these weird communities because I, you know, worked at the Daily Beast and then at NBC News, um, just covering, you know, sort of the darker spaces. And only when in 2016, with the election of Donald Trump and Gamergate and, um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, uh, the conspiracy theorist in chief is now, you know, leading the free world, like, it, all of this became mainstream news. So, you know, the weirdos on the internet that became Boogaloo boys, like suddenly started doing things in real life that threatened the country. So, you know, that's my beat. Okay, that's me. And then, you know, the anti-vaxxers that for a long time have threatened um, to bring back diseases that we basically had eradicated in the U.S. Okay, they became mainstream news. So that's my beat. Uh, and you can, I could I'm and I report way too much right now. I report far more than I should. I am far too successful for a, a, a world that has not lost its mind. And so like, I'm, I'm just constantly having to react these days. And we try to do that in the most responsible way possible, which is to say, not just say, look at this weird thing on the internet, but it's to pause as much as we can and say, okay, you know, this crazy QAnon thing is happening, or these crazy doctors are talking about, you know, hydrochloroquine and how it's going to solve or save you from COVID without any evidence and, and not just point at it and say, look at that, but say, okay, who are the people who are profiting 
in these moments. So who are the tea partiers that are backing those doctors, for instance, or who are the YouTube wannabe influencers who brought you QAnon, who brought QAnon to Facebook, you know, who, who brought us to this moment? How are they profiting? How are you getting taken for a ride? Because I can tell someone all day long that a conspiracy theory has no basis in fact, but um, people don't always hear that. If I've been able to move any sort of opinion with fact. It's, it's with that frame of like, these people are taking advantage of you and your opinion, whether it's the social media companies or wannabe influencers or the tea party or whatever it is. And so exposing the processes behind this phenomenon is sort of the way I go about it. The next way that I try to go about it is if, if I can't do that or after I've done that, it's the stories that we do show, the stories that we do tell should be of the people that are harmed, right? The people who don't necessarily have power who this is affecting. So whether that's, you know, COVID-19 victims who um, have been sort of misled by anti-maskers or whatever, um, or, you know, whether it's the, the moms who are harassed by the anti-vaccination organizers who organize mostly online on Facebook, like telling those stories, I think are really important. And that's the only way that I've seen to even a little bit move the needle because fat people are immune to fact checks at this point. I think, I think they're very important to point to, but whether they like actually influence public opinion is um, I'm just not totally convinced. Could you tell us a bit more about the economy of the conspiracy theory landscape? Because you've been writing about this for quite a while, but has 2020 really become something of a renaissance for, for this community? Are they, how are they profiting? What are, what are their actual earning, earning potential here? Yeah, so, I mean, you could, we'll just take the anti-vaxxers because that's sure. easy. Um, but there's an economy to any of this, right? From political power of the president spreading lies about, um, you know, uh, the election process um, or, you know, grifters and QAnon selling books, right? Like there, there are small and big economies around all of this stuff, but let's look at the anti-vaxxer movement, especially. So um, what was a movement of moms in the early aughts became um, a movement of sort of media men. And I look at the men like um, RFK Jr., I look at uh, Del Bigtree, a former uh, producer, television producer on The Doctors and Dr. Phil. Um, and then, you know, you have a smaller time people like Larry Cook, who's a social media entrepreneur um, turned um, leader of one of the biggest groups on Facebook that was just deleted, actually, because he threatened or he said that he thought that um, people... Um, protesting against the MAGA march in November should be shot and killed. So Facebook finally said that probably isn't great and deleted him. But we looked at all of those audiences on CrowdTangle and Dell Bigtree's organization brought in $3.4 million last year, I believe. Um, it's a million dollars more than the year he brought in the previous year and a million dollars more than he brought in the year before that. So like, this is a business. Um, these people are in business. RFK Jr. runs a very successful um, nonprofit organization. He, uh, and Larry Cook sells supplements. So like, again, you sort of pick your conspiracy theory or pick your fringe, um, you know, misinformation shop and find various ways that people are making money or um, harnessing power uh, by spreading lies. And Jen, we saw almost as, as soon as the UK started rolling out the Pfizer-BioNTech 
vaccine that conspiracy theories started to circle around. You know, Margaret Keenan, the first recipient, about her background, about Pfizer itself. How much damage has already been done to what will need to be one of the biggest public health efforts in both Australia and the US by just this constant and malicious um, degrading of truth around these matters? So I think one of the ways that conspiracy theories are really dangerous um, is that they tend to direct uh, violence and harassment to a certain target, like you mentioned. And, um, and the FBI actually identified them as a threat to national security on that basis last year uh, in a memo in May 2019 to say that they direct hate, they direct harassment, they direct violence toward these certain targets. These could be religious minorities, ethnic minorities, particular groups, um, you know, the usual suspects, and they take on different flavors depending on the different polities, right? And I think that it's damaging beyond just the episode that we're in. As you mentioned, it erodes, uh, it erodes truth. It uh, erodes trust in experts who speak that truth. And one of the goals that we saw in active measures, measures and disinformation campaigns from, fost, from foreign hostile actors is that's one of the goals, right? To uh, erode trust, um, to, um, to erode the difference between fact and fiction so that people can no longer tell the difference and to foster those divisions within the polity, whether they be religious, ethnic, geographic, urban versus rural, you know, who counts as a real American, who counts as a real Brit, and, and then uh, sort of promulgate grievances around that to, uh, to add to those conspiracy theories and create this plot and a narrative where everyone's a victim. So I think what we're gonna see in the long term is not only sort of an undermining as we've seen of mitigation efforts around COVID-19, masks, lockdown, social distancing, um, but you know, that, that leads directly to uptakes in vaccination, which require a huge amount of public trust uh, in those same experts and physicians and scientists uh, that they've been decrying for the last few months of some, you know, deep state conspiracy. And in the long term, I think that's actually going to impact funding for scientific endeavors. You know, a lot of scientific organizations, universities, uh, the CDC, or the WHO, which requires international community contributions, are founded on scientific consensus and scientific cooperation and input but that's on taxpayers' dime, right? So if these people um, actually gain some sort of political power, they could be in charge of funding. As we saw, we, we have a QAnon uh, conspiracy theorist that's just been elected to Congress from, from Georgia, and she immediately refused to abide by masking mandates within, within Congress itself. So when these positions use their platform to gain power, that could impact funding uh, and, and further scientific advancement. You know, this is really the backbone of the American economy. When we talk about attracting talent, attracting skill, patents, universities, this is all around scientific endeavors and that's being eroded. Is, you mentioned national security and in the long term, but is there a more immediate threat we saw when, again, in the UK, when 5G towers were being rolled out, there were firebombing attacks, I think, on more than 80 towers. Is there a concern? What, what should national security practitioners be doing to protect vaccine supply lines? Or how, how large is that threat at the moment as, as the US starts to roll this vaccine out and as Australia edges closer? 
Well, I think that's an excellent point that, you, that you've alluded to. These conspiracy theories don't stay online. Uh, they filter into the physical world. We saw attacks not, not just against 5G towers in the UK, but against the engineers who were sent to fix them. More than 200 engineers were physically or verbally assaulted in the matter of just doing their job. So this has very real world physical impacts. And I think the national security uh, environment, definitely the scholarship around disinformation has, has known this for a few years now, um, that this is not an online only phenomenon. We saw this in terrorism and radicalization studies. It's the same dynamic, that these people are being recruited and radicalized online. It's just for a different purpose. And thus the national security uh, apparatus has to sort of uh, expand their definition, I think, of what a threat looks like, include disinformation, include these conspiracy theories as they are moving in that direction in local law enforcement agencies, as we've seen with the FBI. In terms of the vaccine, I think we've already seen a high degree of security around logistics. U.S. Marshals um, were, uh, of course, shepherding those first trucks. In fact, as a security scholar, my, my first thought when they tweeted out the photos is, oh my God, don't, um, <laughs> don't tweet out the photos. Geo-tagging and all the, you know, please God. Um, there are some sort of national security imperatives around making sure that these locations are secure, not necessarily publicly known and available for protests and the focus of some of that harassment and incitement to violence as we've seen. So I think we've already started expanding the scope of national security challenges around disinformation and the very real physical impacts those online narratives have. Randy, Donald Trump has been quite literally a hero to the QAnon community. Um, but he also has a, a history of dabbling in anti-vax conspiracy theories himself. But at the same time, he's really trying to be become the champion of this vaccine. How does the community square, square these narratives? Does, does it just not matter anymore? Yeah, that's cute. Um, trying to, to ascribe like logic to where there is absolutely none. I mean, QAnon is, uh, it's a cult and Donald Trump is not just a hero, but a messiah, right? Like he can do no wrong. He's also, you know, Q has also been saying for since 2017 that, you know, Hillary Clinton has an ankle bracelet and is going to be um, was going to be marched off to Guantanamo Bay in November of 2017. That hasn't happened, but they're still with him. So it doesn't really matter to them. Some, the good, the thing, the good thing, the interesting thing about QAnon for me is that again, that there is no logic there, right? And so like you can fit under this big umbrella and you might think some people that are Q people think that, you know, the vaccine is uh, a, a a sort of fake thing that Donald Trump has rolled out to um, somehow, it's all linked to the election stuff, somehow secure his election, but then we'll really find out that it was nothing and that COVID was all a hoax, right? So like the fake vaccine will make everybody feel better, but then haha, it's just nothing. So there was no COVID, see? Like it's trust the plan, all, it's just nonsense. Like it really is nonsense it's fan fiction it's choose your own adventure of conspiracy theories and you know it's also changed recently so what was one time a pretty interesting sort of game of conspiracy theories where like you'd have interesting clues and breadcrumb and the cue drops that you know the 
the bakers would sort of try to decipher and make sense of. Now you just have whoever's posting as Q, Jim Watkins most likely, um, you know, posting an American flag and saying MAGA and that's a Q drop. Like it's really, it's lost all of its imagination. Um, people are sort of hanging on to the, the memories of what QAnon once was and just um, sort of using that again as a, as a flag under which to fly their, their Trump love. Now the anti-vaxxers, Again, they have their own sort of um, fiction that revolves around Trump and what he's doing because they like that Trump is anti-mask generally. They like that Trump um, is for everybody can choose whatever. They like him flaunting rules like at um, Amy Comey Barrett's um, reception, right? Like they, they like what they see, but they very much do not like this vaccine um, and they don't want to take it. But then again, Trump is not saying that they will have to take it or they should take it. He's just saying, yay me, because Trump is for the cult of Trump, right? And they are for uh, the cult of anti-vax. And so whether when those two causes align, that's great. Where they differ, um, it, they're willing to sort of suspend their disbelief, uh, again, in the greater movement or the greater pursuit of their one primary goal, whatever that may be, whatever group you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like QAnon had quite a shift after the election. There was quite a, a period where Q didn't post. And as you mentioned, the posts since the election have been quite lackluster. Is there any indication of what changed? Well, again, Q got out of the, um, the, the premonition game uh, even before the election. So again, the posts were less like, less wild premonitions and more just general support um, for Trump and for the MAGA cause. Um, it seems that it, and, and Jim Watkins has gotten a ton of heat. He's gotten like just a lot of articles written about him, a lot of focus on him since he had to come back and testify before Congress. But I think that, um, I, I mean, I, I, I it's, I don't even know. It's so hard to like guess what's going to happen or what he's going to do or what these people are going to believe because it changes absolutely daily. But what they have at this point is, you know, QAnon people have sort of been sent to the hills, you know, where they were, where the biggest boomers were like doing most of their, um, you know, crazy town talk was like happening on Facebook. And now that they don't have that, Parlor stinks, right? MeWe is a joke. Like they have been sort of forced off the platform. Twitter said they were going to do stuff and they actually got about half of the people, right? So you can still sort of tweet, but then Q said hide your power level. So they're just like in this sort of holding pattern. No one knows what's going to happen to these people and they still have some loose organizational structure, but it's not what it once was showing that Facebook has so much power over these groups and what might have happened had they um, executed some or, you know, um, made some moves against this group when it was becoming a thing instead of now. Um, we might not even be talking about these folks, but, um, but yeah, it, it's unclear. It, it seems like everybody, including Q, is in sort of this wait and see sort of situation. And um, we're all just sort of waiting to see what's going to pan out. My concern is that, you know, like Dr. Hunt said, we, uh, we know what happens when these groups move offline. We saw some QAnon people um, threatening uh, the ballot count. They were, you know, there were some arrests about QAnon people. Apparently, you know, 
one of the men um, arrested in DC this weekend was a QAnon person. I've looked at some of their posts. Like, so we're going to see more of that. And especially when these people have nowhere to go online, what we know, the little we know about deplatforming from research shows that it, it loses a lot of the audience. Like you're going to lose a ton of QAnon people who are going to go join a basket weaving group on Facebook or like plants or go back to their church, right? So you're going to lose a lot of the audience that way. But what you are going to have is people who are really sort of lost, who are really into it, who can become more radicalized, more toxic, are going to be actually meeting on these smaller platforms, be it Parler or MeWe or whatever it is. And those are the people that we are concerned about, you know, inflicting some real world violence. It's been the coronavirus has been a lot of things, but it's also been a nice break from all of the mass shootings that I once had to cover. And so as the coronavirus goes away, as these people who are radicalized and just like bathing in this false information and Trump doesn't, has not won re-election and January 20th comes and he's still not on that podium, like what are they going to do then? That's what we're bracing for. And as these people move offline and become more isolated, do they also become targets for more established groups like militias, street gangs like the Proud Boys? How have they been looking at, at this year in terms of recruitment? Has this been something of a golden era for them as, as well? I mean, we've seen, I've, every group that I've tracked on, just looking at Facebook numbers, militia groups before Facebook um, closed them down, um, anti-vax groups right now, QAnon groups before Facebook closed them down. I mean, we were seeing like in sort of in, in terms of engagement and in terms of membership in these online groups, we were seeing it like this for the last three years. And then in March, when the anti, when the shutdown measures happened for the coronavirus in the States, like a just straight up spike. And it was like tenfold increase in followers and, and in interactions. So Yes, 100%. It's been incredible for the for recruitment. And it's again, it blended groups. So someone who was just purely anti-vax before is now at the same protest as someone who is pro Second Amendment, pro gun, anti Whitmer, and they're in Michigan together protesting those real life um, you know, meetups and organizations, they bleed into each other. Those people are now recruited in two separate groups, because they're strength in numbers, right? Yeah, and Jen, we saw we saw groups like these effectively shut down the Michigan legislature for at least one sitting day. What sort of ongoing threat? I mean, the more these groups come out and the more they're not pushed back against, the more emboldened they seem to become. What are the long-term effects of this? Does this make it more attractive for members of the public to join them? Does seeing seeing them be celebrated by by certain members of the say the right-wing media? How, how big a threat could this be? How different is this to the militia movement of decades past and, and what should we be preparing for? Sure, uh, I will note that this is not purely uh, a US phenomenon. The head of ASIO here in Australia noted the same thing happening um, with uh, far right extremist groups growing in numbers using the pandemic as an opportunity to recruit and radicalize online. And from, as Brandy was talking about that wide cohort, cohort anyone who you know, might be worried about simple government malfeasance, uh, to anti-vax, uh, to the wellness community. I mean, it really has, uh, as she said, a choose your own adventure element to it where someone can find community and certainty and belonging, um, as we said, in a time of great upheaval. 
the the danger is when this disrupts political and democratic processes and um in certain definitions that could qualify as terrorism and we saw in michigan some of these real world impacts you had trump tweeting and uh, against lockdown measures that were instituted in several states virginia michigan being one of them you know liberate michigan liberate virginia they're after your second amendment and we saw these armed groups respond um, they armed themselves and went to the state capitol and intimidated lawmakers. Several of them ended up being arrested by the FBI for plotting to kidnap, try, and execute the governor of Michigan who had implemented these lockdown restrictions uh, around the pandemic. It's one of the reasons that, as we were talking about, the Electoral College met today, U.S. time, and the, one of the reasons that Michigan chose to have that in a closed session. They closed the public buildings uh, in order to hold this purely formal procedural ceremonial event that not, you know, it wasn't a big deal a few years ago. And now everyone uh, might have noticed that they're being live streamed um, from, from almost every state, such as the scrutiny uh, around this process now built on conspiracy theories about voter fraud and electoral interference malfeasance uh, by one party. So I think we're seeing these groups use the opportunity to recruit. They're using elite cues to enact violence. Uh, threaten lawmakers, not just Michigan, they shut down um, the legislature in Idaho as well, stormed through the doors, um, and several lawmakers departed. So votes weren't held about some of those restriction measures. So they're actually succeeding in some of their goals to intimidate lawmakers. And it's not just elected officials. When we look at the public health landscape, we see that public health officials are also vulnerable to targeted harassment and violence from some of these same groups. Um, we already had a deficit of 38,000 public health officials around the United States that weren't positions that weren't replaced after the recession. So we were already on sort of a skeleton crew in the United States when this crisis hit. And we've seen public health officials, some the highest in their state, representing millions of people, having to step down from those roles after being, uh, you know, targeted, their families targeted, their homes picketed. Um, and, you know, this is not what they signed up for uh, as a public health official, as scientists and virologists. Um, and so I think we're seeing that trickle down. We're seeing not only lawmakers kept from possibly doing their jobs, we're seeing public health officials also either choosing to retire early or get out of the profession entirely due to these threats. And that will impact perhaps careers that people choose in the future. If this is a dangerous profession in which their families might be threatened, we might lose real talent in these positions um, in the future. Yeah, it's, it's the doxing itself is, is something that's quite frankly terrifying. Um, we saw a webinar, a web call between, I think, health officials in, in Idaho that was interrupted because protested protesters had turned up at the house of, of one of the, the members on that call and she left in tears because her 12-year-old son was home alone. I've tried to steer a bit away from talking about Donald Trump's role in this so far, but I think especially with the Electoral College voting today, um, putting President-elect Joe Biden over the line, when does this end? What is Trump's end game here? We have a few questions here about whether Trump is trying to profit from this, how he's profiting from this, and, and what his goals in disputing the election are when there seems to be so much writing on so many walls that this is over. Joe Biden has won. Well, I'll start and let Brandy chip in as well. Uh, I think there are two motivations for this president. 
that are not common in presidents seeking re-election. The first is to maintain immunity from legal prosecution. There have been about 4,000 cases that Trump has deflected while in office using the shield of that Oval Office immunity. Um, you might recall that the day before his inauguration in 2016, he actually paid $25 million to settle a fraud case against Trump University, a case that was one of the oldest of, uh, on the docket in New York, but was also on the docket in Texas and Florida. Um, and he has continued to use the office to shield himself from further lawsuits. So the moment he steps out, he becomes vulnerable. Now, that's sort of tied into the second motivation, which people have identified as financial, but it's also for those legal defense funds that he insists on fundraising through his many, many emails and texts to supporters and non-supporters. And, you know, um, I think one of my colleagues put me on this list as a joke, and it's not funny. Uh, it's not funny. So I get those as well. And they are pleas for cash that the, uh, that something is being stolen from Trump supporters and they need to contribute cash now in order to restore democracy. And a little bit of fine print at the bottom says it's going to his personal legal defense or it's going to his personal campaign fund. And so I think there are two motivations, right, to, uh, to avoid prosecution, which is why he's talking about early, was it 2018, talking about pardoning himself now he's talking about pardoning his family members who are, of course, members of the administration. They're not just his children, they are members of the administration who were given official offices, roles, and security clearances. And thus they are also subject uh, to some of this prosecution, uh, including at the state level, right? So even if Pence were to pardon him, uh, were to take over the day before inauguration as president, pardon him for federal crimes, he's still vulnerable to state prosecution. Uh, and using those financial levers to keep himself afloat. As we saw through the, re the recent disclosures from the New York Times, he has about 400, to a billion, 400 million to a billion in personally guaranteed loans coming due over the next two to four years. So some very unique motivations to remain in office that we don't normally see from commanders in chief who were forced before this administration to divest themselves of some of these conflicts of interest. Brandy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the president's thinking. God knows I don't know. Um, and I don't know what any of his supporters are thinking. I mean, all I can see is that it's a wholly unsurprising thing that he is failing to concede. Like, when has he ever in the past? Like, the thing that we know about Donald Trump, the candidate, um, and Donald Trump, the leader, is that he continuously... Um, claims that, you know, every force from, um, you know, corrupt judges to politicians, everybody is, has it uh, out for him that the system, whatever system, the, the Emmys, right, was, that was the famous thing at the, the debate, the Emmys were rigged against him. That's why the Apprentice, uh, the apprentice didn't win an Emmy. Um, he said that the 2016 election was rigged. After the 2016 election, when he didn't win the popular vote, he said he was announcing this big group that was going to look into the election and, and find how it was, how everyone was cheating and there was rampant fraud. And then like a couple of months later, it was that group was disbanded with no report, nothing coming from it. Like, this is what the president does. And of course, he's going to continue this. If he is at this inauguration, I'll eat my hat. 
and you know and and beyond that if he ever says that this was anything but rigged and if he ever presents any evidence you know i will be wholly surprised because one he obviously lost everybody knows it who you know still has brains for brains and then the second piece is that you know uh, uh he he's never going to concede it because why would he why would he and nobody holds it to account either so all the republican politicians that are still sort of um, holding this water for the president just only emboldens him. So I, I think if, if you're waiting for that, you're going to be waiting a very long time. Are his supporters waiting for it? So more violent protests over the weekend. If Donald Trump keeps this up for four years, do these just get worse and worse, more detached from reality and more desperate? And how, how dangerous could this be? You know, some elements of the conspiracy community, and I think it was Eric Trump Jr. even tweeted this out. He said as a joke, label Joe Biden a pedophile. There's no, no truth to that that is, is visible at all. But for certain members of this community who are seeing President Trump as their hero, being replaced by someone who they genuinely believe is abhorrent, how desperate do they get without Trump intervening as he seems so unlikely to do yeah, I was, there was a Washington Post piece about the, the MAGA rally uh, over the weekend. And I think that there were two or three different supporters who literally were like, until the president, you know, says it's over, it's not over. And, you know, if the president says it's, it's done, then I'll, I'll accept the election. But until, like, it seems like people are sort of, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is just me guessing, but it just seems like people want to be done with this charade. And all it would take is the president to say, you know, gracefully that he lost, which you would think he has to know, um, or, you know, Stephen Miller knows, or any of the president's children know, like, but no one will sort of say the emperor has no clothes here. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I can't, suggest whether someone another comet pizza will happen um but we know what happens when people think that a cabal of satanists and child abusers run our country and it's um not good it's violent stuff it's a comet pizza it's tons of harassment it's constant threats um from to media people like you know anderson cooper talked about it the other day on his show and 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 to public health officials like it's just it's very concerning. I'm very worried again about what happens after January 20th when this just continues. Um, and who knows whether Trump will have Trump TV or whatever it turns into, but we already see the siphoning off of an audience to Newsmax and to OANN and to places where, you know, people objectively have no grasp on reality and only tell, you know, their followers what they want to hear. Um, th that seems very dangerous to me. We have a question here from Fred Chilton, who asks, will Republicans return to historical roots or continue to back Trump for 2024? Now, I think this gets to a bit, if Trump isn't going to give this up, what does the Republican Party do while he's not in the Oval Office, but still lobbing grenades in over the White House barricades? I, I think that depends on how the next couple of years go. Um, you might know that 126 House Republicans signed on to the amicus brief that Texas uh, lodged with the Supreme Court, trying to overturn the results in the, in the neighboring states. 
and, the, and they didn't like the results in four states, so they appealed to the Supreme Court to overturn them. 17 states uh, joined all, all Trump states, uh, as well as I said, 126 House Republicans. This should give everyone pause. So this isn't just a Trump phenomenon. These are elected officials who were elected in that same cycle, I might add, given that all members of the House are up every two years. If they're saying the election was fraudulent, so are their seats. Um, but the fact that they can disconnect from that and still support Donald Trump. Now, I know there's been speculation about how that's only because he is the man of the big chair. And once he is no longer president, perhaps they won't feel that pressure. Perhaps they won't be beholden to his base. If they're not up for election for another two years, they might take that opportunity to go in a different direction. I, I'm not sure I see that happening, but it does depend, I think, on investigations. What we've seen thus far for people who are leaving the Republican Party in terms of elected officials are they do it when they retire. Just today, there was one. Um, who is not running for your election, he's retiring, he is leaving the Republican Party, almost symbolically, as he's only got a few more months to serve. But I don't see the current crop of Republicans abandoning Trump, given that they owe their success in part to his popularity. We have another question here from Nobiyasu Abe from Tokyo. Um, uh, and he asks, how about Facebook, for example, establish an ethics committee to decide on shutting down information? It may give a chance to show credible proofs before doing so. I think that gets to social media's role in this, but also a bit of the dearth of regulation in, in the sector. Social media companies have largely been regulating themselves. What are the potential avenues for both regulation from a government level, but also what directions are social media companies moving in to combat this. Trump was infuriated by the stickers that were being labelled on all of his posts on Twitter and Facebook. How effective are they and, and what, what should be done? I mean, there's a lot of research that goes into the effectiveness or, or you know, unintended consequences of, you know, the labels and the fact checks and, and whatever else. At this point, what I'm finding in my reporting is that especially like, let's again, talk about anti-vax, but you can, it's the same across any, whether it's political or medical misinformation. What I'm seeing is that, you know, you can even shut down the biggest accounts at this point, but at this point, people have already built, um, built their audiences and their ideologies really on this platform so that they sort of have a life of their own. And, and, you know, misinformers are really good at sort of um, manipulating or circum venting Facebook, uh, I just use them because they're the biggest ones, but use uh, circumnavig circumventing uh, the platform's ability to, um, to enforce their policies against them, right? So like you have Facebook deleting the biggest anti-vax, some of the biggest anti-vax accounts, but people are still trading in anti-vaccination misinformation on the platform through organic conversations. Sometimes they're gaming, um, you know, like local news polls to spread misinformation. I mean, they're just, they're, they're changing their verbiage or changing their language. They're using vaccines with two parentheses or, you know, vaccines with asterisks in the middle. Like they'll always be playing this sort of cat and mouse game with people that want to game the system in that way. I just like, coronavirus is this huge opportunity and 
it was a huge, like at the beginning of the coronavirus, all the platforms got together with the WHO and were like, we've got to do something. We've got to make sure that we all get together and we collaborate. And that was really good news. Like we thought that they were going to sort of stop misinformation in their tracks. But what we now know is that they did a terrible, terrible job. Everybody was still siphoned off into their conspiracy communities and those communities got stronger than ever. Um, it didn't work, you know? And so short of regulation or somehow unwind or, you know, unwinding the platforms from their acquisitions and, you know, taking Instagram away from Facebook perhaps, which I don't think will happen, but like, I, I don't, they're too powerful. Like these platforms are absolutely too powerful. There's no, we, this coronavirus was a test. The election was a test and they all failed miserably and they tried their best. So like, what does that tell us? It tells me that these platforms have far too much power over our lives, over what we see, over how we communicate, and in, in, in terms of what we believe. Um, what we're increasingly seeing too is that employees at these organizations, designers um, and programmers and uh, people who enforce these policies feel the same way. Um, and, and I don't know what's gonna happen next, but there's some reckoning that needs to be done. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that looks like necessarily. Jen, from the the government regulation side, there's section 230, which is more or less ancient at this point. Uh, progressives dislike it, conservatives dislike it, but for radically different reasons. What what can be done or what should be we what should we be watching for in this space in the first year of the Biden administration? Is are there likely to be any big moves on on section 230? Sure. So for the uninitiated, uh, section, section 230 is almost as old as the internet itself. And it talks about how these, um, these companies can't be held liable for the content on the website. Um, and it, it kind of treats companies like Facebook more like the postal service, right? They're just delivering the message, but they're not responsible for what's in the envelope. And I think we've moved well past that. Um, you know, sometimes when I talk about Facebook, I talk about the good old days. You know, this, this is a website that was started so some guy can meet girls in college. He's, he's our age. Um, he's not some sort of, you know, sage individual that has the best interest of society at heart here. Um, and remember in the good old days, you, you used to have an EDU, you used to have to have an EDU email address uh, just to sign up. Right. Um, but then we, we opened it to the masses and, and democracy was sacrificed on its altar. And I think we tend to focus on Facebook because um, because a lot of that misinformation and disinformation is trafficked through there. Again, in the 2016 election, we have from the Republican chaired Senate Intelligence Committee reports, Russia, for instance, paying for ads on Facebook in rubles, not apparently setting off any alarm bells setting up competing groups to face each other in physical locations in real life to call, you know, to incite violence. But I think we have to look at traditional media's role as well. Well, before there was Facebook, there was Fox News. And, and before Fox News, there was Rush Limbaugh. So where we might see some of our extended family members radicalized, myself included, is in AM radio shows. Um, so they might not even be on the tweets and on the Facebook, and, but they're still getting these same narratives. They might originate in the dark corners of the internet, but they're being laundered through traditional sources and through, through people and personalities that, that also profit from it. 
but but people who have built a large following. Rush Limbaugh was one of the you know the key anti-maskers for that key boomer demographic. He was talking about how people should just adapt, um, like the Donner Party, uh, which again for the uninitiated is a group that resorted to cannibalism on the frontier. So these are people that have a huge following, 20 to 30 million listeners, Fox News, also huge. Apart from the online presence, we have to take a look at the entire media ecosystem and what we can do in terms of either uh, depriving them of advertiser money, right? There are a lot of community grassroots efforts around this. One of them is Sleeping Giants. There's one in Australia as well. Uh, for consumers to vote with their wallets, to approach these advertisers on some of these shows like Tucker Carlson, and say, I, I didn't realize this is what your brand stood for. I'm not sure I want to be part of that as a customer. And having companies pull revenue you know, from these broadcasters. Um, so I think we have to look beyond simple regulation, but it has to be part of the package. It, it seems like individuals have a very large role to play in this, whether it's pressure on corporations, but even in the, the sphere of de-radicalization, it's often family and friends who are placed with the burden of trying to coax their loved ones back out of the rabbit hole, as, it, as it's called. What resources do family and friends need to do this, given that the regulatory space leaves much to be desired, the media landscape leaves, leaves much to be desired? How should we be helping those who are, who are burdened with this? I, so this is a terrible answer. I'll preface because um, it's it just it, it just gives your time and your eyeballs and you know clicks and advertising dollars back to the same platforms that are causing so much of this crisis. But uh, I do think that social media has always sort of held a promise, especially with health misinformation, of bringing communities or health information, bringing communities together to find sort of answers for common problems. Like, you know, something like restless leg syndrome was first identified because a bunch of people got on the internet and were like, my legs hurt. Like, what is this thing that we have going on? Doctors saw that and boom, we have a diagnosis. So like, there is a lot of power in organizing online and in organizing on these platforms that make it really easy to organize and meet people. The whole Facebook find your community is true. It's very easy to find a community online for you. And there are um, support groups on Reddit, on Facebook, for people who are getting, uh, who for family members who have someone that they've lost to QAnon, for instance, you can find those communities. They're great. Um, Reddit, by the way, was really good at getting um, QAnon off the platform super fast. So it had calm before the storm and a couple other subreddits there. But once they started doxing people and saying awful things about pedophilia and lies, they were like, nope, off. And it worked. It worked really well. So well that everybody moved to Facebook. Um, and so, but like, but th they do hold promise in that way. I think that no one's asking me for the answer, but if, if I know of anyone, it's that you know, at some point we have, truth needs an advocate as, you know, one of my heroes, Joan Donovan always says, truth needs an advocate. And at some point, someone at the platforms will have to do what Reddit did and what Facebook has done somewhat with militias and with QAnon and say, this is not right. This is leading to real world harm. And we have to, we curate your experience anyway. All our algorithms determine truth every single day. And so we're going to do that more um, 
effectively and we're going to do that in a way that protects our users from harm and protects the greater world from harm and they know how to do that they can do it now and they can get the bad stuff off the platform and they can promote some of the stuff that brings people together and lets people you know bond and and find common interests and have a good user experience and engage in healthy communities and that's true for twitter as well and all the other spaces so i think like finding your space <laughs> on the bad places and hoping that, that the platforms get a little better about policing their own communities is, is sort of what I would suggest. So the great influencer battle, Jen, I wanted to ask you, being based in Australia, a bit about Telstra's campaign, fighting back against um, 5G, anti-5G conspiracies with, with comedy and, and known comedians and, and influencers themselves. Do you think this is effective for big corporations to sort of address the, the elephant in the room when they are responsible for, for rolling out this infrastructure that is so um, undermined by conspiracy theories swirling online? I think the Telstra example is a great one. So Telstra is our telecommunications uh, company here in Australia. And when the 5G conspiracy theories started swirling, they hired a well-known comedian, young, um, very affable, fun, uh, to host a series of sort of commercials and ads bringing in real scientists to do the talking, but he's sort of providing the witty, pithy commentary uh, between takes. And I think comedy is wildly disarming. Uh, it's, it's one way to sort of diffuse a, a situation, especially if caught early. So I think comedy, um, using well-known people uh, to make these points is a potentially productive avenue. Um, I will say, just to give heart to people who are listening and perhaps looking for those answers about how to de-radicalize family members, uh, you are not alone. Um, having a PhD in national security, briefing um, parliaments and congresses in multiple countries on these topics has not made my advice any more attractive to my own extended family. Uh, so it's not you, <laughs> is, is the response. And I think it's going to take a long process of looking at the types of information that are provided. Um, for instance, I think it can be helpful to, to remind people of some of the histories of some of these um, you know, key personalities in the, in the conspiracy theory space. For instance, um, you had uh, Alex Jones as part of Infowars is uh, one of those sort of early conspiracy theorists online sort of uh, tinfoil hat guys. He got the attention of the president in 20, uh, of Trump when he was running for president in 2016, who actually called into the show and gave him a lot of kudos and, and, and support that way. But if we look at, you know, Alex Jones history, you can use the comedic element and say, oh, if you're quoting from Alex Jones, is that the guy that was talking about NASA having sex colony, um, sex colonies on Mars, that guy? You know, and that way, that can be a way to sort of disarm and detach uh, from people who are using that as authoritative sense of source of information. Or you could also use, you know, on a more serious note, his commentary about Sandy Hook. And I mentioned that because it's the anniversary today, uh, December 14th, 2012. Um, was it 26 elementary school children were, were massacred as well as four or five of their teachers. And Alex Jones really made his name during this time by calling that event fake that it was set up, that those, those parents and teachers weren't really um, parents and teachers, they were crisis actors, and this was all a big hoax. And that has led to harassment of these families. Um, some have had to move multiple times. He's in the middle of a harassment suit um, where actual money is involved. 
Um, in the case of Rush Limbaugh, you know, he's been on the air for a long time and he also has a pretty unsavory past that you could refer to. If people are just coming to these individuals for the first time and saying, oh, I heard this on Rush Limbaugh, I really liked what he was talking about. Oh, Rush Limbaugh that, that has called, um, you know, every daughter of a Democratic president a dog or ugly or uh, the same guy that made fun of Michael J. Fox's symptoms of Parkinson's and said he was faking. Um, and, and that's one way to sort of detach um, and, and isolate people from the sources of information that are being brought into their newsfeed or being brought in from extended family members that they might be new to, but you can sort of um, hopefully uh, diffuse that situation very early. But there, it, it, there's no one size fits all. If, if uh, you know, countering radical extremism literature has taught us everything, this is a long process um, with a lot of methods that are gonna be involved and a lot of parts of the community, not just family and friends. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Um, if we can inject comedy into any part of our lives, it usually makes it better. Um, I know I could use more of it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people saying satire is dead after the Trump presidency, um, but we'll see what the future holds. We are just about out of time. I'd like to thank you both so, so much for, for joining us on Vaccine Day. Um, as, as dark as some of that conversation got, it's so heartening to remember that, that today, hopefully this is starting to change for the better in the United States after what's been a, a very, very difficult year. Um, Brandy Zdrozny, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us in, in your evening. Jennifer Hunt, always a pleasure to have you. And thanks to all of you watching online. It's a really important topic and I'm glad we were able to address some of the ways out of this because I know certainly in my community of my network of friends, it's starting to affect people and people are starting to look for answers. So I'm so happy that we could look at this beyond just a, a trivial Americana import that Australia ha has to deal with. This is something the world is grappling with and it is truly an honor to have both of you here to, um, to make some sense of it all. If you are interested in more USSC events, head over to our website. We'll have lots next year. We're likely to have one on inauguration day. What's next for Biden? How will he deal with things like we've been discussing today? Um, but for now, I'd like to wish everyone a happy holiday season and once again, a happy vaccine day.